Hi there. My name is Mireya Perez, and I aspire to create a platform where language service providers can tell their stories and where listeners can find inspiration and creativity. This podcast is dedicated to you, the language professional that desires to listen to the journeys of others in order to create their own path and personal branding. Here, I'll feature an array of guests from all fields of interpretation, as well as translation, willing to share their stories with you. Join me as we embark on professional and personal development by telling our stories. This is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Hi there. Welcome to another episode of the Brand the Interpreter podcast and happy November. Today is Wednesday, November 11th, and it's Veterans Day in the U.S. And so today I'd like to take a moment to thank all of our veterans for their service. I also want to thank you for joining me here today and giving me at least one hour of your time to listen to this episode of the podcast. As we near the closing of season one, I'm filled with gratitude to you, the listeners, for continuing to support the podcast and engaging with me on social media. My ultimate wish is to continue growing in order to bring you better and better content. So, suffice to say, I'm looking forward to season two. But today, I'm looking more forward to introducing our next guest. Today, we'll have a conversation with Catherine Allen about community interpreting. A bit of a disclaimer though, this episode was recorded earlier in the year and so you may hear a couple of things that have since been updated or have changed. So just throwing it out there in case you come across it. All right, so let's get started. Catherine Allen is a community interpreter with over three decades of experience interpreting, training, and designing curricula. She is president of Interpret America an organization dedicated to raising the profile of interpreting in the U.S. and around the world. She is lead developer and licensed trainer for the Indigenous Interpreter 60-hour training manual and workbook and has helped embed professional interpreting into medical missions in Mexico through Rotary International Projects. She taught for the Glendon College Masters in Conference Interpreting for eight years and is currently an instructor for the University of Massachusetts Amherst Online Translation and Interpreting Certificate Program. Catherine is co-author of and licensed trainer and trainer of trainers trainer for the Community Interpreter International, an international textbook and the Medical Interpreter A Foundation Textbook for Medical Interpreting. Catherine has an MA in Translation and Interpretation from the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. So, without further ado, here's Catherine Allen.
Catherine, it is such a privilege to have you as a guest on this show. Thank you for accepting my invitation. Well, Mireya, I'm really glad to be here. So thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. It is such an honor. Let's dive in and uh, have you share your story. My story, I haven't shared my childhood story for a while, but I, I'm <laughs> from the U.S. I grew up in Oregon, actually. And you, I guess in terms of being part of the language world, I started studying Spanish pretty early uh, when I was in fifth grade. And I just I kept taking it and kept taking it. And I don't know, I just, I kind of grew up very internationally for different reasons. I traveled a lot when I was a kid and kind of gained an awareness of other parts of the world. Um, and kind of a passion. I guess we all come out of a social justice background somewhat in community interpreting. So I just became aware of the inequities and, you know, wanting to help. And so after high school, I went to university and uh, majored in development studies, which is all about sort of uh, international relations, but, you know, more from an economic viewpoint. Actually, I'd like to go back a little bit, Catherine. How does a girl from Oregon end up taking Spanish class in fifth grade, unless schooling was set up differently in Oregon, but uh, wouldn't that have still been elementary school or was that like a bilingual program? No. So I spent three years in California because of a family, because my parents divorced. So I spent three years with my father in the Bay Area and went to a private school for those three years. And the story is actually kind of ironic because I was coming in as a sixth grader at that point. And, uh, you know, the, the popular language, they did offer l language classes and the popular language class was French and everyone wanted to take French, but uh, yes. French was full. So I had to take Spanish, which was sort of considered the less, you know, uh, I don't know, sexy language. Right. <laughs> but it, but as it turned out, that teacher turned out to be a big mentor for me and I really took to the language. And then when I moved back to Oregon a couple of years later, by then I was in, uh, middle school, and I kind of lobbied to get into Spanish classes in the high school early, and I just kept pushing at it and, and taking it. And I never did, I didn't never majored in Spanish, but I took it all the way through college, um, you know, and, and, and just got as good as I could and was an exchange student a couple times, actually, but once in high school and once in college. So I did everything I could to build up my Spanish as I was going along in my educational path. You mentioned being privy to inequities. Is there a story that you recall that you experienced uh, that kind of stuck with you? Well, yeah. I mean, in some, you know, in terms of Black Lives Matters and privilege, you know, your listeners don't know, but I, I am just very much a Caucasian, you know, middle class American, right? This is that's my background. But when I was when I went to uh, Oak, you know, to the Bay Area and lived there for those three years. I did spend the first year in public schools and it was still during the era of busing. So I was bused from the hills where my academic father and stepmother lived and put into a um, three quarters, you know, African-American public school. And it just it was a huge experience for me, both sort of seeing the inequities, you know, and understanding that I was coming in with a lot of privilege, even at that age, but also the discomfort I felt, you know, at, at being, um, you know, there were just not, weren't very many <laughs> white kids in the school. So I learned it was a big eye opener, you know, for, for that culture. And, and then later my, uh, 
or I guess even earlier at one of my international trips, we ended up in Africa for several months and I ended up living there. Um, I was seven at the time and living in Kenya and Nairobi in an East Indian boarding house. So I just had some interesting exposure to different cultures at a time when I was really young and they really stuck with me. Yeah. I, you know, the elementary particularly, I think during that um, just age range and when you are exposed to certain things, I, I do feel that uh, they are certainly um, just engraved in our memories at somehow, right? Yeah. At that, um, But I have, you know, uh, memories of when I was going to school in Los Angeles and being bussed over to a, a completely different school. I, I cannot really remember why I was unable to go to my neighborhood school, um, but really feeling like a minority uh, at the school where I was bussed. And I felt um, just like a sense of not belonging. And that was, right. you know, at a pretty young age. And so, uh, you know, reverse Reversing that for for you, I, I'm just explain to us what what was the feeling or what is it that you saw if you can recall a particular event. I, I definitely felt the sense of otherness, but I'm never going to compare it to what like you know. I mean, otherness in the sense that for those two brief periods of my life, I was not part of a majority culture. Do you know why I was doing right. that? But I was never in any jeopardy or experiencing the economic. Jeopardy. I mean, for all the you know difficulties I could have had in my own childhood or whatever, it's like I was never experiencing the same thing. So I just I want to be careful. It's like I, def I it gave me I think empathy and compassion and an understanding that I had a lot of doors open to me that other people didn't. But I also did on a very personal level just kind of experience that sense of you know not being part of the the in group a couple times. And and then even as an exchange student, I think that's one of the huge benefits. I lived in Colombia, you know, for a semester and I lived in Argentina and then I lived in Chile for several years. And I just think, I wish all Americans had the opportunity, you know, to go live outside of their own space um, yeah. and really understand because that's how you learn about your own culture. I think you learn best about your own culture by going outside of it and experience someone experiencing another culture and having to kind of navigate and fit in, you know, and so... Sure. Yeah, no, and thank you, thank you for sharing that experience because I think it's also important, even though you know it's it's at times even difficult to share, and it's not a comparison. I think here, particularly in this platform, it, it is about our experiences and our stories, and so what that looks like from your lens is not going to be the same as what it looked like from my lens, as it would it would look right. like right for an African American peer. But I think when we're able to see it, I mean, this was a childhood, right? This was right. our childhood. This, so. Yeah. This what I experienced. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Now, Catherine, take us now into uh, your university years. So you, you major in um, developmental, um, I mean, development um, studies, you mentioned, correct? Yes. I, I majored in something called development studies, which was, it was pretty much like international relations, but it had more of that. No, I don't even, we don't even have the right, you know, developed, undeveloped nation. I mean, I hate the terms. There's no good terms, but it right, was focused, right. it was focused more on, you know, it wasn't, it was one of the few programs that wasn't focused on Russia and the U.S. Most international relations programs oh, were, because okay. it was still during the Cold War, right? I mean, I'm going to date myself here. <laughs> uh, but I did, so I studied, believe it or not, I studied Russian intensively for three years, and I had every intention of going off and, you know, doing my exchange, uh, my university exchange in, in Moscow. But when the moment came to pick where I wanted to do my study abroad, I 
I veered, veered back to Latin America because that's just kind of where my heart was calling me. And so I ended up in an exchange program that w- went to Colombia, um, mostly Colombia. And, uh, and, and so I kind of, that was where my focus was really in looking at development issues, especially between the U.S. and Latin America and kind of all the inequities and in how our, you know, cultural and political and economic structures, you know, were interwoven, that, those things that you study when you go study. Right. I yeah. mean, and, and then, I mean, also, I think what I find also amazing is the fact that you followed your heart, which a lot of people tend to not do, uh, you know, because what happens is we intellectually think, but this is what I've been studying or, you know, your path was supposed to be going to Moscow, but instead you end up in Latin right. America. How long were you out there for as an exchange student? Exchange student in high, in college, it was just for a semester, and then oh, about a year, two years after I graduated, I went to Chile um, and worked in community development settings in Chile right after the Pinochet dictatorship ended. So I was there at a really interesting time, and I lived there for two years before coming back to the United States. And that's where I that's where I finally became fluent. You know, I mean, I bumped my proficiency up, I think, high enough to be fluent enough to start interpreting, right? It, it takes a lot. And it's one of the reasons why I have, I have a lot of compassion with all the people I train, you know, all the different pathways we have to acquiring our languages, because I'm definitely, I, I've worked at it, you know, to, acquire, to get Spanish up to where it needed to be. It was a very long journey for me. So did you find yourself interpreting uh, out there in that experience? That's really where I had my first, I'd say the first really major interpreting experiences I had was when I was in Chile. I I was involved with these environmental efforts. Um, It was a, we were way down in Southern Chile and there was all this issues around, you know, forestry extraction. And so there were groups of people trying to, you know, save certain parts of the, the environment down there. And so I got connected with a group that was, it was a collaboration between a U.S. nonprofit and groups down in Chile and basically nobody was bilingual. They, I mean, they were part, there were some partially bilingual people, but they really couldn't talk to each other very well, even though they were collaborating on some pretty big projects. Um, and so that was when I got pulled in and I ended up doing a lot of interpreting and translation during that time, just completely ad hoc, the way so many of us end up getting into the field. You know, I, right. I, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just doing it because it was needed. Um, <laughs> So that was, those were some of my, that was my first hint at like, oh, this is, you know, this, there's, there's a lot to this. There's, yeah, there's a need. There's definitely a need. Yeah. I mean, just that need for, for me, I think that was my first um, sort of real, there were some big high drama moments in some of the, you know, uh, trips that these groups made. And, you know, it was my first kind of real gut understanding of like, wow, it really matters to get at the root of the meaning. Like these people do not understand what's happening. Like they're, they're, they think they're communicating, but they're not right. It is sort of a lot of just really seeing the cultural assumptions that took, there were a lot of cultural assumptions I I saw take place. And, um, you know, just, it, it was, it taught me a lot about that kind of, you know, what the, what the, it taught me a lot about what else goes into communicating beyond just the words we're saying, mm-hmm. right? Right. Catherine, now you come back from that experience and you're back in the States. At what point did the inspiration behind becoming a part of the language industry uh, occur? Do you remember? 
or did it just you transition know, into that? No, I mean, yeah, there's, it was, I came back, I got married, I moved into the middle of nowhere in Eastern California. I live very rurally. It's, but, but I came, I moved into an area that had an explosion of immigration. It was during the nineties when the big, you know, big explosion of immigration happened. And I just happened to be working in the county that had the biggest per capita growth in Latino, you know, <clears throat> residents. Um, even though it's a tiny county, it just, it went from like 5% to 50% over 10 years. It was really fast, the change. And so any, any one of us there working, you know, who had any kind of language skill would get pulled in all the time. So I was working in mental health and social service settings and I was being hired because I could speak Spanish. And then finally, you know, what, after actually I had my the birth of my first child and I was off for a while and I just finally dawned on me that this thing that I was constantly doing on the side could be a career. <laughs> you know, and it just took me quite a while to go, duh, you know, this could actually be a career. But it was kind of right at the beginning of when, you know, community and healthcare and all, you know, before when interpreting was starting to formalize. So it wasn't really a pathway that was obvious. Like the only interpreting pathway I knew was like conference interpreting at that time. Right. But believe it or not, I, you know, no, it was a very specific moment for me. I had this very specific moment of like, this is what I want to do. I, I had little babies. I lived in the middle of nowhere. And so I kind of mapped out, it took me 10 years, but I mapped out how to get to grad school. And I spent 10 years, you know, joining professional associations, going to short course trainings, going to conferences and like doing whatever I could to get ready to apply to grad school. Like once I knew what I wanted to do, I just, you know, I, I, uh, I did pivot towards it and really work towards being able to enter into the field. It was just slow. Mm -hmm. Share with us what this looked like for you, because you, you mentioned that you, you moved or were living in a very rural community, right? Did you begin with clinical settings or how did it evolve? For the most part, I was doing, you know, before I joined Chia and kind of began to understand what professional behavior looked like for an interpreter. You know, I, I was working, so I was working in mental health. And so I ended up interpreting what, before I quit that job, I, I would interpret sort of across all of the town services and the county services. And then I spent several years doing largely educational interpreting, but like, you know, special education meetings and a lot of early intervention program stuff, a lot of special, a lot of, um, a lot of physical therapy and speech therapy sessions. You know, I did, I did a, you know, I became an interpreter for the, you know, the regional disability center and would run through, you know, be the person for that. So I did, I actually just did a lot of community interpreting. I interpreted quite a bit for the health department. So it was all public health, you know, more program kinds of things, um, home visits, that kind of stuff. And how, what did that, how, how did that come to be with you? Were you out there uh, promoting your services with these entities or were you? Uh, no, they just knew me and could would call huh? me. Yeah, no, because it's so small here. I mean, the Mammoth Lakes, which is where I was working at the time, has 5,000 people. <laughs> it's like Bishop has about 10,000 in the whole area. Bishop's like 5,000. I mean, it's just, it, we are really extreme rural here. So anybody, you just, everyone gets to know everybody and who's kind of moving around, especially in the, in the agency level, people, you just, people know who their employees are and, and whatnot. So people knew who I was and, and I kind of had a circuit for a while that I was interpreting, um, you know, for, for these different agencies. And then 
you know, I don't know what year was it, 2002, I went up on to the California Healthcare Interpreting Association Board. And that was right at the time when the hospitals were starting to realize that they were out of compliance with everything. And when there was kind of a explosion of need for, you know, hospitals started to create interpreter services department, they started to understand that they needed to, you know, be in compliance with Title VI. Um, and I just hit that right at the right moment because when I went up on the CHIA board, suddenly I was, I had legitimacy just because I was on a board. It's always interesting to me how these things work. Um, but I, so I helped both our local hospitals, you know, set up their interpreting services programs. And I just sort of started to move out. I, I was interpreting, but then I got involved in professional association work and I started to train. I got trained to be a trainer. So I, things just kind of went gradually. And then eventually I, I got myself to grad school as well um, to get to get my master's in interpreting and translation. So where did you a, go to grad school? I went to the Middlebury Institute of International Studies, which many of us still know as the Monterey Institute, but it, you know the one in Monterey. So I, I got my master's in translation and interpretation in Spanish English from there. Catherine, you mentioned a key phrase uh, just a little bit ago, um, and it's a title that perhaps many are not familiar with. Explain to us, or let's go ahead and get into what community interpreting is. What community interpreting is. <laughs> you mean the poor stepchild? <laughs> yes, it shouldn't be, but it's, it's, wait, well, for me, community interpreting is the largest specialization in the country and probably the world by numbers for sure. But basically community interpreting is, is the interpreting that is, you know, immigrant facing, right? It's the interpreting that is providing language access to our immigrant communities across the country. So it's interpreting that's happening in the schools, in healthcare settings, and yes, healthcare is part of community interpreting. It's the umbrella term. Um, Social services, you know, any kind of sort of service-based where you're trying to provide access. In this country, legal interpreting is a separate specialization and is governed by different ethics, Um, but it's still legal interpreting also is serving the immigrant community, you know, to, to provide access to justice. But community interpreting is basically all the services, right? Yeah. And you mentioned something uh, important too. So uh, legal interpreting, just to clarify to those listening, that requires uh, certification, correct? It, court interpreting does, right? Court so, right, I mean, so legal interpreting is a broad field that, you know, encompasses interpreting that happens both in inside and outside of the court. So think jail visits and attorney client meetings and private investigation. And right, there's many, many different arms of law enforcement that are outside of a courtroom. And that's all legal. And then I think what most of us think of when we hear legal interpreting are court interpreters. To interpret inside a court in front of a judge, you know, you are supposed to be certified or qualified provision, you know, in some way, because there's obviously not a certification test for all the language pairs mm-hmm. that are out there. But there are, you know, pretty much across the country, there's infrastructure now that, you know, you, you need to be, have passed some kind of certification test or a qualifying process, you know, to be interpreting in a courtroom. Whether or not you, they're hiring certified legal interpreters, you know, outside of the courtroom is a little bit, they, they should be, but are they, you know, often right. I think many different kinds of interpreters interpret in those settings. A really good example kind of of a mixed 
uh, area in California is workers' comp interpreting. Mm. Definitely legal, but there's a lot of medical in there. Um, so, and that is the only area in our state that's governed by the California state legislator. And you, you have to be either court certified or medical certified, supposedly, to receive those appointments. Um, and you just yeah. mentioned another uh, key thing that I was about to ask. What about now for medical interpreting? Does that require certification? No. So medical has certification, and it's about is it about twelve years old now? I think we're ten years old, eleven years old. But it's not the same thing. You know, the the courts have over time, you know, put in either through regulation or legislation the requirement of certification inside the court or some kind of pretty rigorous proof of competency. Again, this is applied, whether it's complied with depends on a lot of things, right? Right. But there is, that is more generally true for courts. In medical, we have certification, you know, because there are two different bodies that created certification efforts a decade ago. They were well-received and people took the test and there are hospitals that require it. And there are areas, I think maybe a couple states that require it, but it's not nearly as widely mandated, you know, as, as it is in legal. And let's be clear, there are way more medical interpreters than there are legal interpreters. Healthcare is, you know, the largest industry in our country. It's a trillion, many trillions of dollars, right? So there are many, many, many providers of healthcare and there are many, many medical interpreters. Um, so there are, you know, I think we have about 7,000 certified medical interpreters across how many languages is it midday? It's like seven or 14 languages. It's not that, you know, it's only a small number of languages. So, and then you have more that are what are now called core certified that have at least passed written tests, you know, around interpreting, but um, it's not mandated. It's not. So it's like, you, you can work in a hospital and not be certified. And not that be certified. It, de- it's, it, it depends on the area, the hospital, the city. Mm-hmm. It depends on a lot of things. We have and a ways so- to go. Yes. Then the next question for you is, if I wanted to come in and work in a K through 12 district or just a school district at all, and this, of course, I know the answer to, but because I'm sure that you get asked this quite a lot. And uh, for those listeners that perhaps don't know, do school districts require certification for interpreters or translators coming in? No, you get you typically get hired as the the you know the the district translator, which almost always means translation and, and interpreting. Um, there's not, I mean, and this is you know, I'm sure your listeners know that you're involved in efforts around educational interpreting. Midea. I hope so. Yes, I hope so. <laughs> right, but to me, this is the area that uh, I think education interpreting is definitely this. The, the, area, the specialization that is professionalizing, and it is going to push everyone out of their comfort zone around what they think community interpreting is, because in my mind, it is the area that requires the broadest skill set, um, right? So it, it's like you, educational interpreters don't just do meetings. They also, they do simultaneous. They have to do translation. I mean, pretty much people are hired to do do both, right? Translation and interpreting. They have to do all kinds of meetings and all kinds of settings. There's a lot of legal embedded in what they do. So uh, to me, I think that when educational interpreting professionalizes, I think it's going to push out our definition of what is required 
mm-hmm. for a skill set in a community setting because you can't get away without having simultaneous interpreting and you can't there's just you you need you need a very deep skill set to Absolutely. be able to to work in educational settings yeah so. i that's we you know then and the conversations of course here you know amongst us we know uh the dire need for um just training in general right and we know when we walk into these settings um and we begin to see that the bilingual staff, whether that be the secretary or whether, you know, that is the instructional assistant or the yard aide um, is pulled in and uh, is assisting the the parent. And of course, bless their hearts, that's exactly what they're going in there in hopes that they're able to offer some assistance. But when one comes in as a trained interpreter with, you know, a different background and you walk into meetings such as these and you think, oh my gosh, <laughs> why is this allowed? Right. Um, so yes, absolutely. I completely agree. I think it's it's definitely going to take a lot of people out of their comfort zone, including district administrators, which um, I think they're the ones that really are, are looking at, at this as a, a job that anyone can do, unfortunately. And um, there's just a lot of education that still needs to be to get out there, right? Yeah, there's. I think hands down, no matter what part of the field you're in, our biggest Achilles heel is that people don't understand what we do. And I mean, I've been saying this for 20 years and I still, it's still just as true. It, you know, people don't understand actually the skill set required to, you know, adequately transfer that message, right? <laughs> Depending on the setting. So they don't understand that. And they also don't understand, like when you start to layer on different requirements such as, oh, no problem. You can come to our board meeting. Well, we're just going to have one mic in the middle of the table for our 12, you know, board members and you can hear it, right? And, you know, and well, how come, you know, we're going to let the fan, you know, the, the, the audience members speak, but wait, what? We have to do this consecutively? That takes forever. I mean, I, I think that the level of complexity that the educational interpreter faces is mind boggling. And, um, and and it just, I guess if I tell you the story that really got me is, please, I was yes. called in for a private training in a city that you know has enough funding, um, you know, in, in sort of a large school district. And I went in, and, and they wanted a simultaneous training. And I was like, okay, usually you start with consecutive. You go in. I was I was training for another agency, but I go in and and I realized that this particular, you know, city had chosen to hire. They're on like their actual employed interpreters they were hiring, you know, a couple dozen of them were all targeted 100% for simultaneous needs because there was so, so much need for simultaneous interpreting. And they, and this, this city could not fill those appointments with qualified people working through language agencies, right? So, Mm -hmm. what you're, so what it was such a sort of, that was a real aha for me. But the other aha was, so I, you know, I came in and trained these interpreters who were all working for different school districts who are constantly getting pulled into what is really conference interpreting skill set, right? Like most people do get a master's degree mm-hmm. before they end up in a booth-like setting in these kinds of meetings, right? To, to really be able to handle them. And, and the, what really distressed me was the level of distress in these interpreters because they felt like such failures because they would go into these settings. They wouldn't, they wouldn't get the packets ahead of time. They'd have their little, you know, the portable equipment, their sound would be terrible. And then there would be an agenda that had 
12 different topics with people reading off of prepared statements, you know, three different PowerPoints and everything from who's contracted to put the new solar roof on the parking lot. Right. Which is one right to currently, currently my situation. Right. And then, or who's, you know, now wait, what's our new whole disciplinary procedure around, you know, whatever, or school shootings. I mean, and the interpreters get just, you know, parachuted in with, without the proper preparation, without the proper training. And then they know they do a bad job because why, of course they can't do a good job because they're not trained to it. And it just actually that, is part of what pushes me around the efforts around educational interpreting is wanting to improve that for the thousands of educational interpreters who are just being put in that position day after day and being asked to do something that they actually can't do through Absolutely. no fault of their own and then being judged for it and right. feeling like a failure. It, you know, and it just kills me. So, yeah, no, I, I could not agree with you anymore. I think it's uh, definitely a topic all in itself that, um, you know, deserves a, uh, just a, a couple of uh, podcast episodes <laughs> so we can throw those out there. But I did want to give our listeners, um, you know, just a gist of what that is and what your efforts have been really, because that's really how um, our wor- worlds collided, um, which was at the uh, Interpreters and Translators Conference out in uh the Orange County Office of Education in Orange County, California. And, you know, the the efforts that Natalia Barca is just putting together, you know, to be able to assist with the professionalization of interpreters in education. I think, um, you know, it's definitely a story to be told all in itself. And uh, we've got a long road ahead of us, but, and a lot of work. It'd be, I think, uh, beautiful if anyone out there has ever seen or heard of a study that's been conducted on, you know, trained interpreters in education and just the variety of different uh, types of uh, interpreting and assignments that one has to carry out. I think, uh, you know, that, that would definitely put us somewhere in the map, at least (laughs) (laughs) to be believed. Catherine, what would you say is what people often get wrong about community interpreting? You know, kind of segueing from what we were just talking about, you know, I think in, even inside the profession, although I think it's getting better, you know, people see it as entry level, the easier place. You don't need as much of a skill set. Oh, you just need to be kind of bilingual. You know, I, I think people view it because they're, it is not as structured and professionalized yet. People mistakenly equate that with, oh, it's not as hard. But I actually think there are many ways that community interpreting can be the hardest place to be interpreting because of the huge diversity and variety of settings you find yourself in and the constant decision-making you have to make about how to stay within a professional role. So it's highly complex. The services that are being provided have no equivalent in the, the country's of the people they're interpreting, you know, for the immigrant side that they're interpreting for, often there's there's just a complete disconnect of shared knowledge, um, you know, like the school system in this country or the how you get unemployment here or the social service system here has nothing to do with, you know, the how they are structured in other countries. So, so there's just such complexity around language decisions and staying on top of your language proficiency for the areas you're interpreting in, and then making those decisions about how to stay ethical and professional, especially when you're so often working with people who don't understand your role or or who have never thought about 
what it might look like to be professional or ethical in that role. You know, and that, and to me, that means fundamentally, you know, respecting the communication of the two people, right? It's like, it's their conversation. What can I do to make sure they have their conversation to the greatest degree possible? And it, that's a complicated thing to do. And so Absolutely. I think, I think what, that's what inside and outside of the profession, I think that's what people get wrong. And, you know, I, I think community interpreting has contributed hugely to our understanding of communication inside the interpreting profession. And I think that's beginning to be seen better now by, you know, other, other areas of our field. Well, yeah, like I said, this, this topic in itself, I think we can um, talk all day about and just, you know, bounce uh, ideas and efforts and, you know, things like that back and forth. Um, And we could, yeah, spend all day on it. But uh, for the purposes of time, Catherine, let's get into back to you and your story. What would you say, Catherine, has been your biggest challenge during your career? And what did it teach you? For me personally, it was believing in myself that I was good enough to do it. And that was what pushed me to graduate school. So just for me personally, you know, getting prepared and challenge, you know, applying to and getting into graduate school and then getting through graduate school, you know, was a big moment for me because just because of how I did acquire my Spanish over such a long period of time and not formally, I never really believe, even though I was interpreting a lot, I didn't really believe that my Spanish was good enough. So personally, that was a, a huge thing was to understand my skill set and believe in it and have the confirmation that you know, I, I was good enough to do what I was trying to do. Um, but I think career-wise, probably for me, one of the, the biggest challenges is, you know, interpreting is, I, f- I feel like there's two pieces to the career that's, that we have. One is what we do inside when we're actually practicing our skill, when we're inside the session and we're being that voice and we're, you know, doing everything we can to help those people communicate as authentically, you know, as they can. And then there's what happens outside of that session and how can we then like have a voice around all the things we see that are going badly or wrong or need to be fixed or changed, right? I think many of us feel that. And so it took me quite a while to understand that I could do both and that I was allowed to have a voice about my profession and about the workplaces I worked in, which is ultimately what put drove me into professional association involvement and being on boards and then ultimately to founding Interpret America, um, which was our, you know, my own sort of platform for advocating for our own profession. And I, I just think, I don't know if that's everyone's challenge, but I do know that I think interpreters struggle with trying to find that pride in what they're doing, but our, our voices are so muted. Like we're not allowed to have our own voice in what we actually do when we're doing it. And so then when you walk out that door and it's like, that was a train wreck or, oh my God, how can this be happening? Where do we take that? And it took me a long time to balance those two things out. You know, does that, I don't know, does that count? Does that help? Absolutely. (laughs) No, absolutely. That makes total sense. I totally get it. Catherine, how is what you're currently doing different from how you imagined it would turn out? So once upon a time, you thought in the near future, this is what my future would look like. Maybe. You know, once upon a time, if you <laughs> told me that I would be a public figure in my own way, I would have said, you're out of your mind. <laughs> Don't put me in front of people ever. I just want to be in the background. 
so I, yeah, I know not ever was never on my to-do list. Um, so, you know, and I don't think I would have, I don't think I expected, like I could see training and teaching, but like, I don't think I expected to end up being such a public speaker that that was not something I expected. And yet it's brought so many opportunities, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, it has. Yeah. You learn, you know, you, I mean, again, I've said it, I say it so much that people probably just roll their eyes, but there's just, you want, if you want to sort of boost yourself and elevate yourself, raise your hand inside some kind of effort that's happening inside the field, whether it's a professional organization or something else, because that's how you can start to boost your career, right? So, you know, the first time I raised my hand to be on a committee and the first time I said, well, maybe I'll try to do this presentation. You know, my very first presentation was at an ATA conference on interpreting in rural areas. And it's hysterical if I were to ever go back and show it to you. But, <laughs> but I met the president of Chia. She came to my session and she said, come to the Chia conference. And then she said, come be on our board, right? So that just that was one single act of having the courage to put in a session to present when I was terrified had actually led just opened a million doors for me. Um, and I've seen that happen for people over and over. So that's so great. Yeah, I don't that's know. So inspiring you know, too, because yeah. we, I've had other guests on the show that have recommended joining professional associations, yeah. you know, and so just like you just mentioned now, you know, it, even if there's efforts out there that are, um, you know, trying to be started, just becoming a part of that, right? Yep. It's a relationship-based profession, right? It's yeah. not because people don't know what we do. And so because they're not sure of what we do and there's no way to, you know, it's like I, I have no idea. Like if I don't know Mireya and I don't know personally what she's like, I don't really know if she's a good interpreter. Is she going to be good? Right. And so because, you know, we don't have that way to say I'm an RN, I'm an MD, I'm a teacher, like everybody from language companies to our clients to our, to between ourselves, like it's interracial. It's, you know, it's all about relationships. And, and that's, I think that's why people recommend it so much. It's like when people see you and know you and get a sense of you, then they're much, then you're going to get recommended and you're going to start to meet people. And I love that. that is how it works, right? Yeah, I, I really do. And I think that uh, I, I've, I've been, um, you know, just so secluded in these last few years and trying to develop, you know, systems and procedures in the organization where I'm currently at that I completely and have absolutely, I, I will admit, uh, shamelessly, not been putting myself into these, um, you know, positions such as becoming parts of organizations. I promise that has already changed. Um, but it's just in the aspect of relationship building, just like you just said, it just, you know, for me, I think it's just filled me particularly during these times where a lot of us can be extremely isolated um, and just being able to have that networking opportunity with others and, you know, sharing our stories with one another, it's made a world of a difference for me. So thanks for sharing that and bringing that out because we've heard it over and over um, again and again that joining a professional association is a, a definite must, um, you know, in our fields. And so if it didn't sink in in episodes prior about its importance, then perhaps this time it will. Catherine, has there been a work-related moment in your life that has inspired you or left a lasting impression that you'd like to share here with us? 
Well, there's been a lot, right? But I think I'll share. I, I've, I'll share one that I don't usually share because I and you know because it's a little bit outside of the community level. But you know, I I spent that time down in Chile, connected with environmental organizations, and that led to me volunteering services at an international rainforest conservation conference that was put together. And it, I mean, it's just classic. It's like they spent thousands and thousands of dollars to bring, you know, people from seven countries to do a working conference to try and save the world's remaining rainforests, right? And they didn't, they had volunteer interpreters the entire, I mean, it was insane, right? Mm-hmm. So that was my first experience of like, oh, <laughs> you know, huh. But one of the women that came was an indigenous leader of the Mapuche uh, you know, from down in Southern Chile, her name was uh, Teresa Panchilla. And she um, is a poet, well-renowned poet. She came up and I realized it's like, oh my God, this here's this person who has the most important information to get out, to be able to communicate. And her perspective was so important and there was nobody there officially to interpret for her. So I just kind of attached myself to her as much as I could. And uh, I think one of the moments that really moved me the most was when there was a small meeting between indigenous leaders from, you know, First Nations in Canada and the tribes up in Alaska and her and another couple other people from South America. And they were, they just were discussing forestry issues from their perspective. And it was this sort of, they all had this sort of epiphany moment of how similar their approaches were, just even though they came from completely different tribes and completely different cultures, but they were, they had so much in common. I remember like getting to just be part of that big aha that they all had and being the bridge, you know, the language bridge for that was something that has always stuck with me as oh, it being wonderful. really important. And to bring that story full circle, we brought her in as keynote speaker for the Linguist Conference in Mexico City last year um, in the International Year of Indigenous Languages from the United Nations, which is now the international decade. But she came in and was our keynote speaker. We invited her and brought her up. And I just felt a, a lot of satisfaction to, you know, go from being a volunteer interpreter who had no idea what she was doing to being able to you know, invite her and fund her appearance at a conference, you know, 20 what? years later, whatever it was, 15 years later. So yeah, what an amazing story. Were you, yeah. uh, were you the interpreter again? Well, informally for her, but she, <laughs> but the, it was in Mexico. She speaks Spanish is her second language, but she was able to speak directly because it, the conference took place in Mexico. Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> Catherine, what would be some specific roadblocks that you would say, you know, to watch out for? Um, I think this is a roadblock that people are overcoming more as the pace of change forces it on us, especially this pandemic. But, you know, I would say it's the need to acquire a lot of different skill sets, Mm. you know, so just, you know, like we pretty much have to have some kind of minimal brand. We need to be a business. If you're, if you're a freelance interpreter of any kind or translator, you've got to put the time in to learn how to present yourself professionally, to understand how, what it means to be running a business. If you're in California, that's now become existential because of the AB5 legislation that's mm-hmm. gone through. So I think, you know, for me, I think people experience those roadblocks of access. Like, how do I get hired? How do I find, you know, oh, but I don't want to be on Facebook. I hate social media. Or, oh, I don't, you know, like I see right. I, those, those roadblocks of like, I don't want to put myself out there a certain way. And I've seen, you know, there's just a lot of resistance to the degree to which we have to be attached to social media, you know, the degree to which we have to put ourselves out there in databases and make ourselves available across technology and learn that technology. And, you know, I, I think those are big roadblocks. And I think other big roadblocks, um, you know, are 
taking your language proficiency seriously. Mm-hmm. I think if, if I could do anything in this field of community interpreting, it, was, it would get people to understand, like to take assignment preparation and their language development as seriously as conference interpreters do. It's like everybody should have multiple podcasts that they're listening to. Everybody should be upping their language as much as they can, you know, and I'm not, I mean, I know many, many people do, but I just feel like it's one of those areas of professional development that people are like, you just go into a session and you navigate it and you make do, right? So all the ways that we get frustrated that people make do without the interpreter, Mm -hmm. I see a lot of, uh, you know, there's a big part of our field that makes do and just kind of skates around those things. And so, you know, from a professional development, you know, for interpreting skills, I'd love to see people really pay attention a lot more to that level of their skill and and, and also just be able to understand that you have to be connected (laughs) on the web in all sorts of ways to really make it as an interpreter at this point. Absolutely. And I think that, uh, you know, these times are definitely proof of that, that it's just something that we must learn to navigate. There's just no way around it anymore. Um, Technology is here to stay and we just need to learn how to work with it, you know, and it's, it's only to improve. Uh, you know, the services that we offer, um, it can only help to improve. So uh, yeah, I completely agree. Catherine, what would be your number one favorite resource that you would say, aside from Interpret America, what would be (laughs) one of the favorite resources that you would say, this is a great resource, everyone should check it out? Oh, gosh, the the, across the board for all different interpreters. (laughs) (laughs) Um, one platform. <laughs> one platform. Oh boy. I mean, I don't know. I I guess boy, one I don't really have one resource because I think the point is there are so many. Um yes, thankfully, yes. So I I would take a different approach and say whatever field you're in, find one or two resources and you will have a professional there is a professional association somewhere near you. Mm. There's a Facebook page that you can search. There are linked LinkedIn is unbelievable in terms of how much information. Probably LinkedIn, if you wanted to just go and find information about our field across the world, mm-hmm. I would go to LinkedIn or Twitter because you do you do you do those hashtag searches and you just find so much. So if, yes. if you're right, so I would but and then once you get overwhelmed with how much is out there, then I would recommend pick one or two things that can help you learn more and stick with it for a while and then go to the next thing, right? Just do it step by step. I love that. No, that's, yeah. that's so true. I think, and, I, and I've seen more and more as well, you know, uh, recommendations from others in, in, in the field um, that say, yes, narrow it down, you know, yeah. uh, maximum of two, no more than three for sure. And just really focus on, um, if you're, we're and, talking social media platforms, just really focus on yeah. you know, not just getting information, but pushing information out. So, right. Excellent and just be aware. I mean, to me, I think it's a mix of like, don't tunnel vision yourself and not be aware that there's a big profession out there. Like know that there's a big profession out yes. there and that there's the resources that you are looking for may already exist if you can move out of your particular area. Um, but don't try and become an expert on everything and be the, right. ha- have the fire hose on your face all the time either. You know, I remember one person who had this habit that I, as a freelancer, and you might be able to do this some, you know, in some ways as an employee, um, who used to say on Friday, you know, that they spent at least an hour every Friday just going on the web and reading stuff. Like they just had a time, one time a week dedicated to reading stuff or looking at resources. And I always thought, I've always remembered that because I thought, yeah, that's a really good way to do it. Yeah. You know? 
other than um, overwhelming yourself with so right. much information on a daily basis and get lost in that rabbit hole. <laughs> right. So they would just put it in a folder and save it and then Friday go through it or go, go or give themselves like an hour to do that website surfing where you click on one thing and go here and go there and go here, you know, but just like dedicate a, a contained amount of time for it. And then you don't feel like you have to do it nonstop when we get flooded with all those messages, right? Yes. Yeah. Great. Excellent. Great piece of advice. Thank you so much. No, I can't remember. I wish I could remember who said that, but it was great advice. <laughs> well, whoever said it, thank you. We do give you exactly. credit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Catherine, what new or future project are you currently working on that you'd like to share? What new? Well, the project that we've been working on since, so, so some of you may, through Interpret America, we held kind of this early summit around COVID, you know, during the pandemic. And one of the things we committed to was launching a platform called remoteinterpreting.info. And we are, even though it's taken us many weeks longer than we wanted, we we are looking to launch that in the next few weeks. Um, And the idea would be that there would be just a lot of generic information around remote interpreting for clients and for interpreters you know, like where to start, where to go, where to start getting information. So we've been, um, we've actually been working on that pretty hard, but it, you know, it takes, it takes quite a bit to launch a website. So that, that would be one thing. Um, and then gosh, in some ways, I think, you know, that many of you know that my, the Interpret America has gone through some changes because our, that my co-president had to step down because he mm-hmm. took another position in the field. So I'm in a moment of reflection, Medea. Yes. <laughs> I, and I'm not, not quite ready yet to say what I'm going to do because I don't really know fully yet. I'm still doing a lot of evaluating, like what, what's, what are next steps. So well, whatever stay that tuned. may be. Yes, absolutely. I was going to say, whatever that may be, I'm sure it's going to be nothing but uh, great stuff, new and exciting things, and absolutely uh, resourceful and relatable uh, things that you are always putting out there for the interpreting community. So I'm super excited uh, for when you get your aha moment and then yeah. <laughs> launch it and throw it out there. I'm excited for that surprise. Thank you. I appreciate that. Catherine, I I just want to take the opportunity to once again, thank you for having accepted my invitation to come on the podcast and sharing your story. But before we go, where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do? Oh, I still find me on Interpret America. It's the easiest way, just interpretamerica.com. And you can contact me straight off the website. That's the easiest way to find me. Wonderful. Is there any associations that you would like to mention? Uh, Any recruitments you would like to do? I would want to remind those of you who are concerned about what's happening with the AB5 bill, which is a bill in California, which basically is going to make interpreters employees of everyone, you know, unless we can get an exemption on this bill. And so there is a coalition of, of practicing interpreters and translators called Coptic in California. So C-O-P-I-T-C. Um, and we've been working hard to try and get that language fixed because there is a fix-it bill that's kind of taking shape. So for California people and people involved with that, we're still pushing hard. It's a really good time to still be contacting you, especially your senators right now and saying that you want this exemption to include professional interpreters and translators. Right now, there's language in a bill going through that limits it to professional translators. That's their term, whatever that Mm -hmm. means. Um, So so we're still working on that. And I would just remind people that's still quite the existential issue. And if it, if we don't manage to get a fix for that, I think we're all going to be learning how to become businesses very 
fast, <laughs> you know. Mm. But that but that bill has been hugely detrimental to interpreters in California, and because companies have pulled out, you know, they've stopped hiring. I mean, people are people are already losing work because of that before the pandemic, and that's continued to pace. So I, I guess that would be my. And then otherwise, the shout out I have is for you, Mireya, because I am so inspired by this podcast that you've launched. I'm so excited for you. And I just, I'm, everybody should subscribe to it. I have subscribed to it on my official podcast app and I get the new episodes when they appear. <laughs> and so like, on my shout out is to you because I think it's brilliant what you're doing. And I love that you are shining an area on interpreting that very, I don't think we have another official podcast for the areas that you're you know, are, are really targeting. So I think it's great. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Catherine. I, it means a lot to me to hear those words coming from you. <laughs> ah! um, so thank you once again, Catherine. I really appreciate your time and uh, we'll be in touch soon. Okay. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you so much. Yeah, just some good, genuine stuff there, right? Here's a quick fun fact for you guys. Back when I was going through my community interpreting certificate program in 2009, one of the courses that now I won't mention any names uh, of the course, of the school, or of the instructor because come to find out, the video I'm about to mention may have been shared without permission. Whoopsie. Anyway, one day in class, the instructor presented a video for our consecutive interpreting session. And on the screen, there was this woman that was taking notes, you know, on a mock verbal scenario. And the speaker spoke for a long period of time. And this woman was taking notes for a long period of time. And once the speaker concluded, the interpreter gave her long consecutive rendition accurately thanks to her amazing ability to take notes. So that woman, as I sat in awe of what seemed like an impossible ability, was Catherine Allen. Fast forward now to 2020, and that woman is guest number 18 of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Thank you guys so much for your support and for your encouragement not just to you, the listeners, but to all of the guests that have been so gracious accepting my invitation. So see, just keep pushing forward. You'll never know what you'll help manifest in your foreseeable future. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you have an amazing rest of the week. Take care till next time and tell your story. Brand the Interpreter. Bye-bye. Are you still there? Oh, good. You know, I wanted to share with you that the Brand the Interpreter podcast was created as a way to help brand the role of the interpreter in a different platform. Aside from being a trained interpreter in the K-12 school setting, I work with others in creating or developing a personal brand or branding within an organization. If you're interested in learning more, please visit my website at www.brandtheinterpreter.com or send me an email at hello at brandtheinterpreter.com. Thank you.